Thank you for listening to this Baker Bots podcast. Baker Bots has the experience, knowledge, and people to solve our clients' most significant legal issues. For more information on Baker Bots practices, please visit us at bakerbots.com. This presentation is provided by Baker Bots LLP for educational and informational purposes only. It is not legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney client relationship. Under the rules of certain jurisdictions, this communication may constitute attorney advertising. Hello, everyone. Michael Loesch again. Excited to be with you today for another episode of the Energy Enforcement Insider, the podcast that provides quick hits and on the latest trends and developments in regulatory compliance and enforcement matters that impact the energy industry. Along with me today, as always, is Brendan Quigley from New York. Brendan, how are you? Hey, Michael. I'm good. Excited to be here today. We have a great topic to dig into on today's show. Yeah, for sure. Today, we're going to talk about chief compliance officers and recent activity related to CCO enforcement and exposures and our CCOs in the crosshairs of enforcement. Let's jump right in. So the SEC, the CFTC, FINRA have all brought enforcement actions against compliance officers. And in addition, SEC Enforcement Director Gabir Graywall back in October gave a major speech at the New York City Bar Compliance Institute in which he discussed at some length the criteria the SEC uses to decide whether to bring enforcement actions against CCOs. Michael, based on this, what can we glean about whether compliance officers are in fact in the crosshairs? Yeah. And considering those recent actions, which we'll get into a little bit, and the recent statements by SEC and CFTC enforcement directors, look, the short answer is we really don't think that compliance officers are truly in the enforcement crosshairs. But that said, there's risk. There's regulatory risk and enforcement risk for those who serve in those positions and who work on compliance matters. And the recent statements and recent cases, I think, highlight several steps that compliance officers should be taking or thinking about as they go through their day-to-day activities in planning, designing, implementing compliance programs. So just moving forward, We could start off, I think, Brendan, by looking at Enforcement Director Grewell's speech and how he classified the SEC's actions against compliance officers over the last several years. And he broke it down into three categories, which I think are instructive and important to to understand for anybody in the in the compliance space. And the first category of regulatory actions involving compliance officers involved, compliance personnel who affirmatively participated in misconduct unrelated to the compliance function. If you're a compliance officer and you take steps to commit fraud or manipulation or misrepresentations, that's a category where there's clear exposure. And that's true whether you're a a chief compliance officer or your head of a commercial business unit or or otherwise in the C-suite. The next two categories are where I think it gets more interesting, and that's where either 
the compliance officer misled regulators, intentionally misled regulators, or the third category where there's some wholesale failure by the compliance officer or the compliance program to carry out the compliance responsibilities. So the three categories are fraud, misleading the regulators, and wholesale failure. And each of those presents a different risk profile for compliance officers. You want to try and put that into some context for us, Brendan? Yeah. So we look back at the enforcement actions, the SEC, CFTC, and FINRA had brought over the last several months against compliance officers and looked at them against the SEC enforcement director's buckets that he listed. And in fact, when you look at the actions, at least the ones brought over the last several months, they all seem to fit relatively closely into one of these three buckets. So the first being where the compliance officer participated in fraud unrelated to the compliance function that we saw in the recent FINRA action and one of the recent actions brought by the FCC. For example, the recent FINRA case, which was announced in October 2023, called FINRA Administrative Action Broker Bank Securities. This seemed to be, frankly, a pretty blatant case. It was administrative action sanctioning a firm and its CEO, who also functioned as the CCO, for permitting an unregistered person to act in a registered capacity. And as settled, the firm and the CEO slash CCO agreed with this unregistered person who had previously been barred by FINRA to introduce his former customers to the firm and give that person a large share of the commissions from the customers from those transactions. And the unregistered person had a prior disciplinary history. There is also a failure to respond to FINRA information requests. So again, pretty straightforward case, although as we'll talk about in a little bit, notable that they chose to highlight that the individual functioned not only as the CEO, but also the CEO. Similarly, one of the FCC cases was filed on November 2nd. This is a litigated action, filed action in the District of New Jersey, SEC, the Prophecy Asset Management, and John Hughes. And as alleged, the defendants told investors and prospective investors, both orally and in writing, that their investment funds were diversified, liquid, and actively risk-managed, generating positive returns every month since their inception, and that the primary investment fund was secured by cash collateral. As the SEC alleges, that wasn't true, and the defendants, both the organizational defendant and the CCO, who also functioned in other roles at the company, did not achieve those results and did not provide investors with stable, diversified, risk-managed, performing funds. Instead, there was a, a concentration of funds with a single sub-advisor who sustained massive losses. And then there was active, again, as alleged, active concealment, including the fabrication of documents, scam round-trip transactions, uh, allegedly designed to get a false appearance that investments have performed profitably. And it's a fairly big, in terms of monetary amount, more than $500 million is raised from investors and they collect $15 million in management fees. And again, the individual defendants function not only as the CCO, but also as the company's president. So again, both of those actions fit, I think, fairly squarely in the category of the CCO actively participating in misconduct, specifically alleged fraud, unrelated to the compliance function. Those are 
good examples and important to dig into those a little bit. I would say the recent CFTC action against uh, the CCO of Binance, which in the last week or so, there was announced proposed resolution of that matter against the CCO for for a number of a number of, of charges for a permanent injunction and a $1.5 million civil penalty has been proposed. I think that matter falls in the category of either wholesale failure by Binance with respect to its compliance responsibilities and misleading regulators. The director of enforcement, McGinley, was quoted in the press release as saying, if your compliance program is merely for show and is intentionally ineffective, the CFTC will hold chief compliance officers accountable for facilitating illegal conduct. And in that matter, there were facts indicating that the chief compliance officer knew that the controls for customer onboarding and other areas were ineffective and that personnel in the company were intentionally seeking and implementing workarounds to the compliance controls that were implemented. There was another quote by the FTC enforcement official, Deputy Director Gretchen Lowe, in connection with that case where she said, instead of having robust compliance system, the CCO promoted workarounds and creative means to evade the derivatives laws. So again, the Binance matter with the CFTC, I think, can fairly be placed within that list of categories laid out by the SEC's enforcement director. Brendan, I think we got another example, which maybe you can walk through for us. But at times, when you're talking about fraud and committing fraud and actually participating in violations, that's pretty, pretty simple. How close to the line does conduct go when you're aware of deficiencies in the compliance program and seeking to remedy them, but you haven't been successful yet either because you don't have the resources or you may have pockets of resistance in the commercial team and you haven't been able to fully implement as a compliance officer, what the gold standard would be, right? I mean, that's a question I think that a lot of people struggle with is how much can you struggle with implementation, but still be on the side of reasonable good faith compliance implementation? Yeah, I, I do think, and again, it's always hard to predict what an agency will do going forward. However, and it dovetails with the last case we'll talk about, I do think in the cases that have been brought, the, the agencies, whatever agency it is, whether it's SEC, CFTC, FINRA, DOJ on the criminal side, have, I think, looked at what type of notice the compliance officer or the person in compliance role was on about specific deficiencies, right? It hasn't been, at least so far, just failure to achieve a gold standard. If that was the charging criteria, that would be completely unreasonable because the whole idea, and I think you see this in DOJ's compliance policies and guidelines for corporate compliance, is the idea of testing, evaluation, remediation, which in a way presumes that not everything is going to be perfect. And I think it is more in these cases about how people respond to deficiencies and particularly deficiencies that they have been put on notice of by either a government regulator or another organization. There was another case 
recently brought, I think in September, by the SEC against an accounting firm partner, not a chief compliance officer, but it has a compliance officer-like flavor, if you will, in that the partner oversaw the firm's quality control policies and procedures and supervised all personnel working under the firm's quality control function. According to the FCC's order for several years, the partner knew that the PCAOB, the accounting regulatory board, had identified various deficiencies in that function and that the firm's own inspections had revealed several deficiencies. And again, this is not after a jury trial. This is a a settled action. So to some extent, this is the FCC's version of the events. But still, I think it's important in that it speaks to that notice, even as alleged, that this partner had about certain deficiencies. And again, as alleged, the partner failed to address them, and that led to various compliance failures in the firm and a $75,000 penalty uh, against the partner, as well as the partner could have no leadership role in an accounting firm for three years. So again, I think that concept, both in terms of enforcement actions and persuading the agency not to initiate enforcement action, but I think more on the left side of the timeline for compliance officers day to day, you have to be thinking about what deficiencies have you identified, have other people identified, and try to go about addressing those in an, in an ordered way, right? Yeah, I would add in an ordered way, meaning a risk-based approach to addressing the remediation. It's, as you say, it's not necessary to have a gold-plated, 100% effective compliance program at all times, but where there are known deficiencies or issues, having a plan to address them over time in a risk-based, tailored, practical way. So let's try and let's try and wrap this up with some practical points, Brendan. Like what's next? What are some of the takeaways beyond don't participate in fraud? What are some of the takeaways? Yeah, I do think, as we've said, the sky is not falling for chief compliance officers. And I don't think that this is not some widespread sweep or anything like that by any means. That said, I do think it's notable that in bringing several of these cases, the agencies almost went out of their way to note that the individual functioned in the CCO role. And I think that is, as you would say, intended for purposes of general deterrence and to get people thinking about the CCO role and to deter CCO misconduct. I think, however, most CCO-related investigations will fall into the second and third categories outlined by Commissioner Graywall in his speech, specifically where the CCO is alleged to have misled regulators or where there, there was a, quote, wholesale failure, unquote, to carry out compliance responsibilities. Yeah. On the misleading of regulators, I would say the recent actions highlight, first, the need to be very clear and thorough and thoughtful in communications with regulators, right? I know there's often relationships with between companies and regulators where there's a certain comfort level developed sometimes with responding to requests that come back and forth on an ongoing basis. But you can't get complacent in your communications with the regulators, whether it's an examination or a routine request for information. You need to have a sort of an internal process to ensure that your communications with regulators are accurate, timely, thorough, and not misleading. So that that's important. I think it also 
highlights the need for compliance officers to have a seat at the table and having a program that's supported with a tone at the top and well-resourced is critical to being able to avoid a wholesale failure or activities that might be viewed by the regulators as significant material failures. And then I would go back to what you touched on earlier related to effective design and implementation of a compliance program, right? There has to be look back reviews and updates of the policies and procedures and controls to address changes to the business, to address new activities, to address risk known deficiencies or on a risk-based basis. You have to update training and make sure that people are trained and the compliance team is trained. And then monitoring and enforcement so that there's some real documentable efforts to maintain compliance through actions when there are when there are problems. I mean, we saw that with the off-channel communications cases, right? There are a number of those cases where these were some deficiencies that were not remedied promptly, reasonably designed, effectively implemented and enforced, and where there's a need to upgrade and remediate to do that. And that doesn't mean a mistake won't ultimately lead to a potential enforcement action against the company or the individual, but certainly those steps will, I think, protect the compliance officers and will also provide a defensive position for the company if if you can point to solid efforts in compliance. These cases also highlight the need for ongoing education, both for the CCOs themselves to stay up to date and for the people on the ground, right? And you mentioned off-channel communications. And yeah, fair point that that was definitely something that where there was some probably some known deficiencies, increased use of text messaging and then things like that. That said, I think 10 years ago, people would not have viewed that as a major compliance issue, right? Similarly, sanctions are a big issue now, given the Russia-Ukraine situation. This become a much more prominent issue, I think. 100%. And I think that highlights the need to continually reevaluate the risks that you're facing and sometimes issues that may have looked one way four years ago when you established your policies and procedures may need a fresh look. If you have a regular process of reviewing and updating, you can hopefully catch the bulk of those and keep your whole program up to date. But yeah, it is a continuing effort for sure. All right. I think that's uh, all we have for today. We appreciate you all being with us today and we hope you come back to join us for our next episode of the Energy Enforcement Insider Podcast. BakerBots LLP provides podcasts for educational purposes only. They are not legal advice and are not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship. This communication may constitute attorney advertising.